This is Isaac Morehouse. Welcome to the podcast where we discuss education, entrepreneurship, big ideas, how to put them into practice in the real world, and above all, how to live free. Welcome to another episode of Ask Isaac. I'm going to do this one in true rapid fire form. In other words, I posted a request for questions on Facebook yesterday. And I did glance at a couple of the early responses, but I have not even seen all of the questions. So I'm just going to read down them in real time and just try to answer them on the fly as fast as I can. We'll see how I can do. Uh, I'm a little under the weather today, and I don't have my good mic right now, so the sound quality might be a little bit lower than the excellence that you have come to expect from this show. But hopefully it won't be too bad. Okay, here we go. Question number one, Jake Oliver asks, are you worried about an economic crash worse than 2008? Jake, uh, I'm not. Not because I have some sort of inside knowledge or not because I know that the economy is not going to uh, dip or even crash. Primarily because I think every market downturn is just as full of opportunity as it is difficulty. Um, and if you're in a good position where you're not tied up with a whole bunch of resources and money and, and your livelihood isn't tied up in things like the stock market or real estate or precious metals or something over which you have no control, um, if you have primarily you know cash and flexibility, uh, that's a great time to purchase assets if the prices fall, uh, to take advantage of you know, people who are willing to work with you for little money. There's there's just a lot of opportunity in that. Um, so, no, I'm not particularly worried. But I also wanted to throw out there, the question is, are you worried about a, a, an economic crash uh, worse than 2008? And, you know, I saw something on Facebook yesterday. I think it was on Facebook. Um, and I don't even remember who said it, so I apologize. Whoever, whoever said this should get the credit. I just don't remember who. Somebody was quoting somebody else. But it was, hey, guys, just a reminder. Uh, the quote was like, guys, just a reminder that the stock market is not the economy. Those are two different things. And I think that's really important. So the stock market can fluctuate and dip. And even if we're talking about, you know, companies that have shares of stock, I mean, even, you know, the Dow Jones Industrial Average is not even the, the full representation of that. So anyway, the stock market can have a lot of dramatic things happen. And that has impacts on productive activity, wealth creation, et cetera, for various companies, various industries, et cetera. But it's not the same thing as the economy, right? The economy is the entire complex web of all of our interactions in the marketplace, of all the goods and resources being exchanged, all the different firms that do the exchanging and the individuals that work with those firms or outside of those firms, et cetera. That complex web, there is a lot of real, solid, strong value and value creation going on all the time and more opportunity for it all the time, more than we've ever seen. Whether or not people guess correctly on the money they're willing to put forward for pieces of paper that give shares of, of ownership and things like that, um, that sometimes doesn't, doesn't uh, go well for people. But that doesn't necessarily mean that there's no value, that there's nothing, that the economy itself isn't sort of healthy and, and growing and there is an opportunity in it. Um, now, it may, it may mean that. I mean, they, they definitely can coincide and, and correlate. Um, and obviously, you know, manipulation of currency and all these things has, a, has an impact uh, far wider 
than just the stock market. But I think that's an important point to, to remember. So I am not, I don't fashion myself in any way as an expert on the markets or stock markets. I mean, I really honestly don't even follow them. I don't even, like I had to I put the stock, you can't delete the stocks app on your iPhone because it's a native app and they don't let you delete it. So I just put it in a folder somewhere. I never, I never even look at it, almost never. Um, Cause I'm just, I just know I'm not willing to invest the time to become an expert in it. And I think anything less than that is basically like, you're just sort of guessing and letting whatever happens with the market confirm whatever biases you have <laughs> about other areas of life. Um, Chris Smith asks, would you debate my cats on your podcast? Chris, I'm not really a pet guy. Uh, and by the way, that gets me in more trouble than almost any other belief that I hold when I say that I don't really care for pets, dogs or cats. Um, I'd be happy to debate your cats. If you can get them a good microphone set up, we can get them on Skype and uh, we'll debate. I'm also not a fan of debate. I find, actually, I hate debate. I find it to be the least enlightening form of uh, exploring ideas possible. And it's not even a particularly good form of entertainment, if you ask me. I don't even enjoy debate as a form of, enter of entertainment, almost ever. Um, certainly not as a form of finding truth uh, or being enlightened. So um, even though I don't like pets and I don't like debate, Chris, just for you, if you get your cats on Skype, we can go at it. Matt Needham asks, what is your favorite piece of fiction? What makes it unique? Oh, that's going to be tough to answer right off the top of my head. And I know whatever I say tomorrow, I'll be like, why did I say that? I should have thought of this other book that was so much better. What was I thinking? Um, but I'm going to try. And I'm going to say my favorite piece of fiction is a short book called The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis. And the reason is probably the time when I read it. I was 16 and I really didn't like read anything at all for the most part before that. Uh, I wasn't really into ideas all that much. I mostly was into sports and Legos and things. And, uh, you know, girls in my mid-teens and whatnot. And I read The Great Divorce, and it was just like the right time. It just opened me up to the world of ideas. I loved it. I loved Lewis's writing style. I loved the open-ended speculative nature. I love that the whole story is told and at the end it's kind of left unclear whether this really happened or whether it was a dream. And that's a theme that you see in a lot of Lewis's work where he's kind of like, it doesn't matter, right? It doesn't matter if the myth is true because it has truths within it. It contains truth. It doesn't matter if it's factually true. You're being, you know, that that's a distraction to try to chase that down. Um, and it kind of leaves this, it, it's basically a story of heaven and hell, but Lewis doesn't claim at any point to be building a theology of what he actually thinks heaven and hell are like. It's just this story, and he just uses the story to illustrate a lot of failings and weaknesses and personality defects in humans that are common and kind of explore those in the context of what would those look like in in light of perfection, in a, in a heavenly realm that kind of reveals how stupid and petty so many of our flaws are, what would they look like? So it's a really interesting book as like almost a work of psychology uh, as well as just a fun short story. Um, John Grether asks, what is the Dow Jones Industrial Average going to bottom at and when? Uh, I have no idea and I don't, uh, I usually don't even screw around with those kind of predictions. I'd be more comfortable making a prediction for where the Detroit Lions are going to bottom out at uh, in terms of their, you know, number of victories this season. Equally hard to predict, uh, and for me, probably even more painful to watch than, you know, giant fluctuations in the stock market. But um, don't really have uh, any special expertise there. 
Gabriel Lochtfeld asks, how would you explain and sell the idea of Austrian economics and sound money over Keynesian econ and fiat currencies to someone with little to no knowledge of either in less than 500 words? Holy cow. Well, it's really hard to do a word count while you're talking live, first of all, but boy, I'm not even, I'm a little rusty even on some of that stuff. Um, that, that was kind of my first love in, in studying economics, but I guess I put it this way. If I was to, to just boil down briefly the difference between particularly, because there's a lot wrapped into here. Austrian economics is just a school of, of economics, uh, and it's a particular approach to economic thinking, um, but in relation specifically to sound money, monetary policy, and Keynesian economics and fiat currencies, this is this, the question kind of lumps a couple of these things together and, and maybe oversimplifies them, but I'm, I'm going to try to tackle just this part, just sort of the... Austrian view of monetary policy and the effects of fiat currency versus maybe a, a Keynesian view. So um, I like analogies. I'm going to go back to an analogy almost as old as economics itself. And this is uh, the physiocrats, a French school of economists. Um, they likened the economy to a human body. And they kind of got some of the things wrong with this analogy. They thought that basically crops were the only source of wealth. Um, but let's put that aside. The human body analogy, I think, works well for a very basic level understanding of monetary policy. When I am tired, my body is sending me signals that say, you need to take a break, you need to take some rest, you need to let your body recharge. Those signals are really, really important. Now, they can be annoying. What if I'm in the middle of something productive and I want to keep doing it and my body's telling me you're tired, you know, you're getting a headache, you're achy, whatever else. I have two options. I can, well, three, I can keep going till exhaustion, uh, which is really bad because I'll probably, the work I'm doing will get worse and worse and then I'll have a, a collapse of exhaustion and probably end up sleeping longer than I would have if I just stopped sooner. Option number two, I can go take a nap, listen to my body's signals, go take a nap and then come back refreshed. Option number three, I can try to drown those signals out so I can buy an energy drink or have several cups of coffee. And not only will that quiet those signals that say I'm tired, it will have the opposite effect. It will start charging my body up, sending signals up and down my, my body saying, you are wide awake, you're full of energy, go do a whole bunch of stuff. And I'll push myself even more. And the underlying reality of my physical body's need for rest has not changed. But the signals in my body have changed. They've kind of been short-circuited. And my body believes that it doesn't need rest, even though it does. Um, and so I'll actually be pushing my body even farther. And then you can get away with this from time to time. Um, but it, it only delays the inevitable collapse and rest period that I'll need to have to recharge my body. Not only does it delay it, it amplifies it. It's going to be a bigger crash when the crash comes. And if every time the crash comes, you take more energy drink, right? Eventually you'll like, it won't work anymore and you'll need to move on to like cocaine or something. And you know, then you'll end up in rehab or dead, right? If you take it to the extreme, that's kind of what monetary policy is like when you have currency that it's the price system is full of signals that reflect the underlying economic realities of what people are demanding, what the supply looks like, what resources are being used for, when you know it's no longer viable to use a particular resource because the value that it creates uh, is less than the cost of, of using it. So you know the, these signals are being sent all throughout the economy through the price mechanism. Money, the creation of money, because 
And this is the, the Fed deliberately has to do this. Otherwise, they would not be able to, to change anything in the economy with, if, with prices. They have to do it in a way that's less than transparent, that's somewhat secretive. If everyone knew exactly exactly how much money was being created at any time, prices could pretty quickly adjust to that. So it doesn't matter how many dollars there are if everyone, it, just as long as everyone knows and the prices can reflect that. So prices might go up and down all the time with the creation of money, but it would all be, rel the relative prices would stay the same, the differences in price between goods. But it's not done in a way that's easily uh, transparent. Then the money is released in one part of the economy before it moves on and ripples through the others. And so it sends these false signals. Interest rates are artificially low because the money first appears, let's say, in, in the you know financial industry, and they've got more money than the actual reality of um, you know surplus resources that have been saved. Now rates are artificially low. The economy believes that it's got more to work with than it does, just like my body believes it has more reserve energy than it does when I fool it with caffeine. Um, so it appears to be humming along, but it's only delaying and making the inevitable crash worse. Okay, that was way longer than 500 words, and that took me a really damn long time. I'm sorry. Um, by the way, you can go on my Facebook page and see John Grether, uh, an economist um, up in Michigan, he answered that uh, at Northwood University. He answered that question in a really cool way. I think he did a really great job of explaining. Um, Frederick Lysander, what's your favorite Taco Bell menu item? Oh, this is, okay, confession time. I absolutely, I love Taco Bell. Totally love it. I think it's amazing. It's one of the wonders of the world. How the hell they can sell you like 15 tacos for 12 cents. I, I will never know. It's amazing. Um, I think Alien Life maybe, you know, came down and, and like, beamed the, the the business model for Taco Bell into someone's head because it's it's almost not human. But I have never had anything from the Taco Bell menu except for soft shell taco, hard shell taco, cinnamon twists, and the little like chips that you dip into the fake cheese. That's it. I'm so like practical. I'm the kind of guy that no matter what restaurant I go to, I think I'm going to order something crazy and I always end up ordering a burger because it's reliably good for a good price. It's like, I don't know, why do I need a grilled stuffed, you know, burrito with Hershey bars and Frito chips and like a movie character stuffed inside for like $3.99 when I can get four tacos that have the same ingredients besides all the weird stuff for like, you know, five cents a piece or whatever, <laughs> whatever they are. So I have never ordered anything else. So to me, the real question is soft shell or hard shell. Uh, and that depends on the mood. I usually mix it up. I, if I go to Taco Bell, I usually drive through. And I'll be like, two soft shells, two hard shells, and a bunch of fire sauce and a cup of water. And I'm out of there for like three bucks and 80 cents. And uh, it fills me up and sometimes makes me feel a little gross afterwards. Danny Benavides, if there was an epic rap battle featuring you, who would you be rap battling and why? What a well-timed question, because I've just been thinking lately that I want to start rapping, you know? You might think I'm joking. I love music. I write some music. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to start writing some rap. And then I realized I have a terrible voice for rap. Um, hmm. Who is my nemesis? It would have to be, to make the, the story, the narrative really powerful and dramatic, it would have to be a close friend where we like turned against each other or there was some beef that we had. And to make it really epic, I'm going to say I would have to be rap battling. I think TK Coleman, my good friend TK. That would be the ultimate. Maybe we'll pretend to have a falling out just so we can release uh, some like raps, you know, ripping on each other. And then we can do like a reunion tour later. That's a good idea. James Walpole. 
What was it like to get Praxis off the ground while you were still working full-time for IHS, the organization I was uh, previously working with? How did you manage it? What advice would you give to other founders transitioning? Um, that's a really, really good question. Hold on, let me just see how many other questions. Okay, I only have a few other questions here, and most of them seem pretty quick and pretty easy, so I will, I will go ahead and answer this, and we should be, listeners, we should be out of here in five or six minutes, but don't hold me to that. Um, you know, it's interesting, James. It was a huge challenge because I absolutely loved my work at IHS and I love the organization, the Institute for hum the Institute for uh, Humane Studies. I started to choke when I said it, but that wasn't because of anything wrong with IHS. VIHS.org uh, if you want to check it out. I loved my work there and I was really into it. And I, I mean, I can honestly say I was devoting myself fully to that job, even as I was doing praxis, uh, building praxis. And when, I, when the idea for Praxis sort of came to me and I started putting it down, my thought all along, I'd had a lot of different business ideas, but this was the first one that was like, I have to do this. I need the answer to whether or not this idea is as good as I think it is. And no, no amount of theorizing or arguing will give me that answer. I need the marketplace to give me the answer. I have to create this thing. So I knew I had to do it, but I didn't have any particular vision of like, okay, I need to quit my job and do it full time. I need to raise money. I need to do this timeline. I just knew I needed to make it happen. And I'm a very impatient person. So I just try to push things as fast as I can. So my, what I told myself was all I care about is that this doesn't stall at all, that I don't lose any momentum. So every single day, seven days a week, I have to do at least one thing to push Praxis forward. So one day, all I did was go and buy a URL, discoverpraxis.com. And I, that was doing one thing to push it a little bit further forward. You know, one day I just talked to somebody who said they could do logo design and asked them to design a logo. And we talked about it for 20 minutes. That pushed it a little further forward. One day I filed the paperwork and, it, you know, et cetera. As long as I did one thing every day to push the idea forward. And I just thought I'll do that until I literally hit a point where I can't move another inch without raising money or quitting my job or something else. And I don't know if that will ever happen. And in a way, it never actually did happen. I just kept pushing and I got the thing off the ground, got the website up, got started taking applications, got the first class applications coming in, started working on acceptance and placement and was still doing, doing and I had somebody, uh, Zach Slayback came on and was helping me just working for free and was still working at IHS and it started to get harder. Um, and then actually a, a, a guy came to me um, who was interested in like, hey, let's let's take this thing up faster and, and ended up doing an angel investment, which allowed me to go full time with it. Um, but yeah, that was really the process for me was just, look, every day I got to work on IHS like I always do, but I have to do just one thing to advance practice. And some days I would spend, you know, some weekend or whatever, I would spend a lot more than a few minutes on it. But as long as I did one thing every single day, bar none, it's like the power of compound interest, right? You know, if you can improve anything by 1% a day, a week, whatever, and when you're starting from zero, it's not that hard, um, it'll compound pretty quick. And that was the approach that I took. Luminara King asks, are you going to bring Praxis to the UK at some point in the future? And, I, and can I work there, please? But seriously, any UK plans? Um, Luminara, we would love to expand internationally. That's something that we have had people asking about from day one. Um, and... As we continue to grow domestically here, um, that's something we always have our sights on. Uh, you know, one of the biggest challenges right now, we have a lot of international students who want to do the program 
here in the States. Um, and we're still working on the best ways to make that happen with the obscene, arcane, downright evil immigration restrictions this country has, uh, which makes it almost impossible. But doing it in other countries as well, having business partner networks and things like that, something we're definitely open to. You know, we we don't currently have much in the way of, of those business partner networks and connections in any other country. Um, so it, we're, we're a ways off from that, I suspect. But um, we do plan to take over the world, so don't worry about it. We'll, we'll, come, we'll come to the UK. Charlie Vidal, is Joe Flacco elite? Such an easy question. Not even close. Give me a break. Let's move on. Kevin Baker, what is the airspeed velocity of a swallow? And Mike Reed asks a follow-up question. Is the swallow laden or unladen? Um, those questions are, I don't know if those are even answerable, you know? I mean, ah, that's the kind of thing that a king should know, uh, but I'm not a king, so I don't know. Monty Python. If any of you didn't get the Monty Python reference, um, I'll be really disappointed. Okay, final questions. Lev's Dolgovs asks, what's your favorite game and why? Oh, no, that's very interesting. Now, if by game the meaning is a sport, um, Football is by far my favorite sport to follow as a fan. Basketball is my favorite sport to play. Uh, but I'm going to say, I'm going to assume that it means as a game, like in the more old school, like board game or something sense. And in that case, I would say I don't like games that have a lot of random luck-based, like go back 15 spaces for no reason type of thing because it just drives me nuts. I like Scrabble a lot. I love word games. I love word play. Uh, I like Boggle too. And I'm, I'm pretty good at Boggle, but the problem with Boggle that, that keeps me from playing it very much is that, well, I mean, for one, not many people play Boggle anymore, but because of the timer, I get so into it, I'm so competitive that it like really stresses me out. I think it like takes years off my life. I'm like writing furiously, I'm sweating. So I like Scrabble because it doesn't have a time limit, at least the way I play it. Um, and I like to play that on my iPhone all the time. It's great, nice and neat. You don't lose the pieces because it's electronic, wonderful. Uh, but I also love um, Texas Hold'em as like a social game. It's a really fun game to play. Like, I wouldn't go play it by myself at a casino, but in, in a, you know, in a house with a bunch of buddies or something like that, um, Texas Hold'em is really fun, especially the if you just survive as long as possible, because I'm not very good at it strategically. It's like when I play tennis with my wife. I just survive as long as possible, and eventually she starts to wear down. You do that at a house game, and you keep, hey, anybody else need another beer? And everybody else starts to drink more, and then they make worse and worse decisions, and eventually you can, you know, do okay. Finally, Jeff Till asks, Zeppelin or Queen? Not even a question. I love Queen. Uh, Freddie Mercury is an amazing vocalist. They've got some cool stuff, cool arrangements. But Led Zeppelin is to bands what Michael Jordan is to athletes. The greatest of all time in a league of their own. Nobody else even comes close. It's Zeppelin. And then among everyone else, there is a discussion. All right. Thank you for the questions. That was a lot of fun. It went a little longer than I wanted to, but... Um, Hey, keep them coming. You can always find me on Facebook, Twitter, IsaacMorehouse.com. You can also email me, IsaacMorehouse at gmail.com. Always love getting the questions and hope to uh, do more of these episodes in the future.